All right, Revelation chapter 1, as we come down to verse 19, out of 20 verses and 20 messages that we're doing in this first chapter of Revelation. And as Ray read, it's one of the shortest verses here, but has very, three very distinct things to say to us and a command to John to write these things which he had seen, the things which are in his lifetime, the things which shall be hereafter. Do you know that no doubt the two most uh, misunderstood books in the Bible are Genesis and Revelation? The two most controversial books in the Bible is the beginning and the ending. The first book and the last book, it seems, are more controversies about what it means. Do we take it literally? Uh, you, you know, where did we come from and where are we going? The beginning and the ending. Someone said there are three questions in life that we all must answer, and that is, where did I come from, and why am I here, and where am I going? Uh, those are questions that human beings have to answer. But where did I come from, the book of Genesis, where am I going, the book of Revelation, are like two bookends that stands on each side of eternity, and without those bookends, everything in the middle kind of falls over. You know, without understanding these two things, uh, we don't know exactly where we're going in this life or how to get where we're going. Aren't you glad that Jesus said to John, I am Alpha and Omega. I've been there and I've been there. And so I can also explain how to get there in the middle. You know, if you had a map, a treasure map or some kind of a road map to get somewhere, uh, you would need a mark at the beginning. Here's where you are. And so here's where you have to start from, and you need a mark at the end because that's where you want to end up. That's where you want to go. And then you need someone who can tell you, uh, turn here, turn there, don't go here, but go here. Uh, my uh, niece, uh, Sarah, is here and her husband. Uh, and Sarah went with us to England the very first time we went. It was in 03, I think it was. The very first time we went over there to find things that we wanted to go to. And, and frankly, we didn't know where we were going. We just knew certain things were supposed to be in this town. Sometimes we just got off the train and started walking. You know, and I think back to that first trip and uh, I sure would have written a poor map at that time. I couldn't have told you uh, where anything was. Well, we've gone a few times now. As a matter of fact, we've, we've been there nine times now. And now on our syllabus and in our map, we, we can tell you when you get off the subway and come up the steps whether to turn right or left. I mean, we have it all mapped out, partly because my sister uh, is good at those things too. But uh, now we can tell you, you know, because... When someone's been there and someone uh, can tell you each step, it makes the map a lot easier, doesn't it? And the Lord Jesus Christ has said to John here, I've been there. I can tell you where you came from. I can tell you how to start. I know what you're made of. I know how you're made. And then he can tell John, I am also the Omega. I know where we will all end up. I know what is ahead for you. I know what human beings have to do to prepare for the future. And so I'm going to give you a map to map out everything in between. That map, folks, is the scripture. Now, as you look at our text here in verse 19, the two things that are said first we have to think about for a minute. Write the things. 
The writing is the form of this road map, is the form that we have in our hands, and the things is the content of that map. Write, he says. Go back to verse 11 and remember this verse. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it. God has designed that his road map would be written. And the reason you're sitting here today with a Bible in your lap is because this command was given John and all the biblical writers to write these things down, put them in a book, because from now to the end of time, people are going to need this road map. They're going to need this book. The word right is a, is a simple word, and you know it, actually, even in the language that John was writing in, and it's the word graphon or graph. You know what a graph is. You can take a piece of paper and a pencil, maybe a ruler or something like that. You can make a graph. In the verb form graphon, it means, he says to John, write thou. You write this down. You make a graph. Do you recall 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word scripture is graphe. All scripture, the graphe, the graph that you have, is given by inspiration of God, the Alpha and Omega, so that the map that you have in your hand was commanded to be written and is written exactly as God wanted it to be written. 2 Timothy 2.10, no prophecy of the scripture, of the grapheis. So graph is the scripture, it is the writing, it is what the graph is made of. Now, you may take to, to, to draw a map, a pencil, a paper, and like I said, a straight edge or something, and you, you make your marks on that paper. God started out with letters, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, and, he, and each of those letters are formed a different way. As you write a letter, you're going to make this one different than this one, and that's how you distinguish this sound from this sound. And as you take those little markings on your graph and you put them together side by side, you form a word. And that word will be pronounced a certain way because you put those little marks on the paper in a certain order. And when you get a word, that word then conveys meaning. And now you need to make sense out of it, so you'll take those words and you'll arrange those in a long line that we call a sentence. And if you do that uh, in a way that makes sense, then people can read the whole thought, can read the whole sentence. And then you take those sentences and you make paragraphs, and you take those paragraphs and you make books. And so God has made his graph for us, and he guarantees us that every mark on that page, as these writers would write it, was exactly what he wanted. Plenary, verbal inspiration of every word, matter of fact, of every letter, every jot and tittle that John wrote down on this graph was exactly what God wanted. So I'm trying to emphasize to you the importance of the writing the importance of the scripture, the importance of this book that we have is given by inspiration of God. God breathed it. The Holy Spirit had him write this letter and this letter so that everything we have in this book is exactly what God wants us to have. Now, that's the form of it, but there's a content to it. 
right the things. Right things. It's kind of an interesting expression. It's, it's a definite article with a blank after it. Right the whatever I tell you. Right the things. Right the pictures. Right everything that I tell you to write. As, as you look at this, look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. Here's the same command again. Now, to this church, write this. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Unto the angel of the church at Smyrna, write. And, and seven different times in these two chapters, he gives the same command. You write these things. Notice, write these things, saith he that hold the seven stars. Verse 8, these things, saith the first and the last. Verse 12, write, these things, saith he which hath the sharp sword. Here is the content. I like chapter 4, verse 1. We'll come back to it in a minute. But when John is called up to heaven, it says, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Hold your place here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in your Bible. I want to read a few verses there. But isn't it interesting, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to be called up to heaven as John was and have the angel say, I'm going to walk you around heaven and I'm going to show you all the things that are up here. Because there are things in heaven, folks. There are things there to see. And we will have a lot of them recorded for us in the book of Revelation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, these verses are filled with this expression, beginning in verse 9. As it is written, as the graph is laid out for you, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. The what? The things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, that is, by the operation of inspiration. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. If you have him living in you, I often pray, don't I, with the Spirit in our hearts and the Word of God in our hand? If you've received the Spirit of God which is in you, that we might know what? The things that are freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. An unsaved man for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We bring this word of God to a person that does not have the Holy Spirit inside them, and we try to explain the things that are in this book, and that person kind of looks at us blank because he doesn't have the interpreter inside. He doesn't have the, the resident teacher dwelling there inside him saying, here's what these things are, here's what this means. But you and I, that know Christ as Savior, have the Holy Spirit in us. And so these things are written by the Holy Spirit. They are interpreted to us by the Holy Spirit. And in our heart, we say amen to the things that the Holy Spirit has written. Back to Revelation now, chapter, chapter 1. Now, in this verse, verse 19, there's this threefold division, no doubt. 
you write, you make the graph by inspiration of all of the things, first of all, in the past that you have seen, secondly, of things that exist now, John, in your lifetime, and then thirdly, of the things which are going to be after this time. Now, we have here a threefold division for the book, no doubt. It's amazing to me as I read some conservative commentaries and even some more liberal commentaries that there are some that deny that the book of Revelation speaks about future things, believe it or not. But here is a very clear division. There are things behind John in his past. There are things currently existing at the time John was writing in 95 AD. And then there are some things that will be in the future that he hasn't seen yet. As a matter of fact, you and I haven't seen yet. This reinforces what we call the futuristic interpretation of Revelation. That is what we believe that the majority of the book of Revelation, specifically from chapter 4 and verse 1, as we'll see in a minute, clear to the end of the book, these things are those things which shall be, which have not happened yet, even in our lifetime, 2,000 years after John. And so most of the book of Revelation has to do with the future. There are some who believe that all of the book of Revelation was fulfilled by 70 A.D., that is, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and the city was gone and the Jews were scattered into all the earth. It's an interesting theory, especially since we know John was writing in the 90s A.D. He's writing in 95 A.D. about these things still that are yet in his future. It's interesting, too, that these, this threefold division then covers the whole dispensation of grace. It covers everything from the first coming of Jesus Christ through the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in between, we have this church age, this age of grace in which we live from the first to the last. And all of this uh, uh, perspective that John receives here covers that whole time. So John is commanded to write. And by the way, you and I are commanded to read. We are even told that we have a blessing if we read this book, verse 3, and then each letter to these churches, this is what the Holy Spirit says to John to write. We're not writing scripture today. The scripture is done. These wonderful prophets and apostles wrote these things. So you and I read it and we preach it and we testify of these things. So let's look at these three things. First of all, we read about the past. And that is the first coming of Christ and what John saw, the things which thou hast seen, past tense. But we don't have to look very far to see what John saw. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And notice, of all things that he saw. You write the things that you have seen, John. What did he see? He saw these things God was giving to him. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Or we have verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me. And so John had seen these things. Now, John saw Christ standing on the Isle of Patmos, and the description of what he saw is here in chapter 1, no doubt. And, and of course, 
that is included in the things that John has seen. But I don't think that we're wrong in understanding that these apostles, whether we're talking about John or the apostle Paul or Peter, these men were, had the same command to write what they knew about Jesus Christ. They had seen the Lord. Let me remind you, for example, of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which, this is John speaking, and by the way, just a few years before he wrote Revelation. That which was from the beginning, which we, that is all the apostles, have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. These apostles go back to that time when they walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. They heard him with their ears. They saw him with their eyes. Their hands touched him. This is the word of life. And as John is writing the description of Christ here, he is bringing into uh, view everything that he knows about Christ. Or Hebrews 1, 1, God who at sundry time and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the world. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus, the writer says. You write, he says to John, the things that you have seen. And Jude reminds us that he gave all diligence to write of the common salvation, and he wrote unto us of uh, the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And so here is John seeing the completion of the first coming of Christ. He knew, his, he knew about his birth, although he didn't see his birth, but he knew he had been born. He knew, he knew Mary. And uh, he may have known Joseph as a young man. He knew of what Jesus did in his lifetime. He saw Jesus die on the cross. He saw the empty tomb three days later when he went to the tomb on Sunday morning. He saw Jesus appear to him for a period of 40 days. And now, many years later, standing on the Isle of Patmos, he sees not only the resurrected Christ, he sees the glorified Christ. The way Christ is existing in heaven right now. And so when John writes to us, whether in his gospel or in his epistles or here in the book of Revelation, he is telling us of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can be confident that what we have in our hands is that record. You know, in England, we don't get a chance to go up to Manchester, but right in the middle of the, of the country of England is a town called Manchester, my son Matthew knows it well because he's a Manchester United soccer fan. But in that uh, town of Manchester, there's a library that's called the John Rylands Library. And we know of that library because in that library is a little piece of old paper called the John Rylands Papyrus, the John Rylands Manuscript. And when the archaeologists were doing their work and discovering these things, they discovered this piece of manuscript, this piece of paper. And when they looked at it, it's, it's only about three inches by four inches, but it's got writing on both sides. So it was two sides of a, uh, of a uh, book page. And they know that one side and the other has to do with John chapter 8. This is the writing from John chapter 8. Now, they look at the paper. They see how it was made. They know that it's papyrus. So they call this, by the way, P52. P means papyrus. 
It's not animal skin. And you look at it, and I've seen pictures of it. Uh, it looks like a board, really, more than a piece of paper. Really old, rough paper that they made out of the papyrus plant. And they assigned it number 52 because that's when it was discovered. And they know that this little piece of paper could not be written any later than 125 A.D. Because of the way the paper is made, the way the letters are shaped, the, the type of ink that was used on it, they know that this is a piece of the Gospel of John from 125, maybe even earlier than that. And John wrote this gospel in the 90s A.D. Imagine, if you will, that we have this kind of evidence of what Jesus said. There is no other book in the world, folks. And you can have confidence in this. You can be more sure of what Jesus said because of what the manuscript evidence we have. And by the way, we have over 5,000 uh, and many of them complete New Testaments and many of them much, more, much larger than that. You can be more sure of what Jesus said than of what Plato said, of what even Shakespeare said 200 years ago or, or a few hundred years ago. You have in your hands the graph that God gave to us by inspiration. And when he said to John, you write the things which you have seen, you have it in your hands and it is a great piece of roadmap. You know these things of Jesus Christ. We can be confident in them. Now, we read about the past. Secondly, we read about the present. So, he also says the things which are. Now, not only from the first coming of Christ to the last coming of Christ, but the absence of Christ. Because between the first and second comings, Christ is not here on this earth, but rather churches are here. And so in the outline of the book of Revelation, chapter 1 is the things which were, which John has seen. He saw Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 give us the seven churches to Revelation. These are the things that exist now. They, the, those seven churches, by the way, and we'll see this next week, existed at the time of John. And here we are, a local church between the two comings of Christ, still reading this scripture that is given to us. We know about Christ we know how he came, and we know that he will come, but we haven't seen him yet. We exist in this present time. Write about the things which are. So John writes to seven different churches in Asia. They're typical churches. You read these seven letters, and you'll find a little bit of ourselves in there. A little bit of everything in these seven letters so that so every church that has existed for 2,000 years can look at these seven letters and say, there we are a little bit, or yeah, we have that problem too, or, or we find ourselves there. There are faithful churches, there are sinful churches. There are apathetic churches, there are evangelistic churches. There are churches that left their first love, there are churches that are faithful unto death. A little bit of everything is here for us. And so we have, as I pointed out, like in chapter 2, verse 1, John writes. And then by the time you get to the end of that letter, look at verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear. How many, let me see, how many have ears here today? I think that applies to all of us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We read these things, we are to hear them, and for 2,000 years now, folks, we have been reading what the apostles wrote, and it is our guide to what we do in this world. 
So think about it. The New Testament epistles, if you will, letters written to the churches, the book of Acts that describes how the church grew in that first century, these letters to these seven churches, all of these things become our pattern for faith and practice. We still come together as a church and take this book with us, and we look in this book, though now two, these, these letters are 2,000 years old, but we look in these letters and say, how did they do it? And when we see how they did it under the guidance of the Spirit and of these apostles and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we say, we're going to do it that way. What did they believe? What were their doctrines? And we study these things and we come away with similar beliefs, the same beliefs we hope. And we say, this is what we must believe because this is what is written. Churches have been doing this for 2,000 years. On the church, no, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we pick up this book and we read it. It's good to have a historical pattern, isn't it? it you know, if, if you had this treasure map, let's say, and you... Uh, uh, left the port in one of those old sailing vessels, and the only way you knew where you were is by reading the stars with, with, with an instrument, it would be nice to know that the stars always give you the same information, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd be kind of a mess if the stars were always rearranged every day, you know, that there was no pattern to them, they just went wherever, and you're out there in the middle of the ocean, and you're trying to get from point A to point B, and you're trying to read these stars, and they're everywhere, something new every day. You'd be totally lost. You couldn't get there. The only way you can get from A to B is by referencing something that is fixed and unchanging. So you can say in relation to that, here's where I am. You know, America is going through this struggle right now, and it's too bad, where we think that our Constitution ought to be a fluid document that changes with everyone's interpretation so that rather than trying to discover what our founding fathers meant 200 years ago, we are at the mercy of whatever a judge happens to the way he wants to interpret it, what he thinks it should mean or she thinks it should mean. And how can we have justice and how can we have a rule of law if the founding document is fluid and changes all the time? Well, folks, there are some people who treat the Bible like that. It's as if uh, however we interpret it, however, you know, what we want it to mean, whatever, however it can fit into our culture or our thoughts and, and whims, then this is what we'll take it to be. No, we must discover this unchangeable, inspired word that has been around for 2,000 years that we still have in our hands so that we can say, this is the way we must go. This is what we must believe. This is what we must do. And we follow that, not what the crew says we should follow. <laughs> you know, when the crew says, we don't want to go there, we say, no, the star says, go that way. And this is where we must go, by the word of God. Man kind of likes it. It's, it's our nature to be independent. Adam and Eve, uh, rather than following God, broke off in their own way because Satan tempted them to go that way, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life, and they fell into sin. And ever since then, we've done the same thing. When we get to go in our own way and we think, well, Lord, I'm, I know what's best. I know better than you know. I know I read it this way in the Bible, but you know I just can't do that. And we get off course, and it's called sin, and we need repentance, and we need to confess those things and come back to God and follow his path. Now, thirdly, not only do we read about the past, 
We read about the present, these churches and the church age. We also read about the future, and that's a great thing. He says to John, and the things which shall be hereafter. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 again. Now, after the seven letters to the churches, the first section is chapter 1. The second section, chapters 2 and 3, and this third section will go from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, I will show thee things, and here's exactly the same phrase, which must be hereafter. The beginning of this third section is right here in chapter 4, verse 1. And now John sees things which will be hereafter, and he begins to write them down. Actually, the phrase can mean which are about to occur. It has a certain imminency to it. It's right the things which shall be, but right the things which are about to be could happen at any moment. And the great thing about living in this church age is that it could come to an end at any time. Chapter 4, verse 1 could commence at any moment. These things are about to be. We didn't know that the church age would be 2,000 years. Paul, when he was writing about the rapture, said, Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him and meet the Lord in the air. He thought he might be part of that rapture. And now it's been 2,000 years. And every one of us has this hope in us, so we purify ourselves, but we look for that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of Christ. And so we sit here this morning hoping that chapter 4, verse 1 will happen today. And we'll be caught up there. And then the things which shall be hereafter will begin. Now, let me also emphasize this. John, when when he writes from chapter 4 to the end of the chapter, he sees a lot of things, right? I'll show you things. I thought about this in 2001, January 1, when my mother died. My dad lived a few years longer. She died uh, on the first day of the new millennium. She, she wanted to see the turn of the millennium. She did. 2001, January 1, she went home to be with the Lord. And I thought on that day, I remember thinking of this verse, chapter 4, verse 1. And I thought to myself, you know, mom is seeing a lot of things right now. Her eyes are beholding things that we only think about, are described to us on our graph, but we haven't seen them with our eyes yet. She's seeing them with her eyes. And our loved ones who have gone before us are seeing these things. Now, John, in a a unique way, writes about something that hasn't happened yet, right? The tribulation period hasn't happened, but he's going to see these things. And he's going to see real things. He's going to see four horses starting off in chapter 4. He's going to see the throne room of God, by the way. He's going to see locusts. He's going to see demons. He's going to see real angels. He's going to see all of these things. And I ask you, are those things real or are they not? Will they be just as John describes them? And our answer must be, of course they will be. What good is writing? What good is description if the things aren't going to be like that? And if that's true, folks, that these things have not happened yet, but will happen as we read them from chapter 4 through chapter 22, then we know it hadn't happened yet. The preterist view, 
does not hold water because you have to say these things are not what John saw. Everything happened in the first century, and it's already done. And you say, well, what about these four horses? And what about this throne room? And what about these crowns? And what about these 144,000 with the marks on their heads? And what about all these things? Oh, well, that's all symbolic, and it's all done. No, John sees these things. He sees these. Let me ask you this. Of what John saw in the past, was it real? Did he see Jesus Christ? Was he describing to us a real Savior who walked on the earth and and he really saw that and wrote it down? Yes. Let me ask you again. When he looked at the churches of Asia, beginning with Ephesus and then Smyrna and Pergamos, Thyatira, were those churches real? Absolutely. Then what right do we have to understand that what he saw was real, what he was seeing at the time was real, but what he is seeing in the future is not real? No. As literal as the first two divisions. Was the first coming of Christ and the prophecies around him, did they happen as the prophet said? Was he born in Bethlehem? Was he born of a virgin? Did he, walk, uh, did he live in Nazareth as Isaiah prophesied? Did he die by crucifixion as, as Isaiah described? Did all of the things, every prophecy of Christ in his first coming happen literally as the prophets said it would happen? Of course they did. Then what right do we have to think that the prophecies of his second coming aren't going to be exactly the same way? The first one happened that way, the second one happened. If the church age is literal, so would the tribulation period. As a matter of fact, Daniel's 70 weeks, if you know that prophecy in the Old Testament, begins in 444 B.C. He prophesies of 69 weeks, weeks of seven years. From 444 B.C. to 32 A.D., the first 69 weeks happen. And let me ask you this, did they really happen? And did those things actually take place that are described within those? Yes, were there even 2,300 real days where the Maccabees fought their battles and then finally purified the temple? Were there really 2,300 days? Yes, sorry, Seventh-day Adventist friends, but that was literal, not symbolic. And so if the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy was literal and happened to the day as, as he gave it, then what right do we have not to take the 70th week literally and happening just as the prophet said it would happen. And so you know what we have to look forward to, folks? A a shout and a trumpet and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God will sound, and when that does, we'll be gone. And And the middle part will be done, the church age will be done, and now the things which shall be hereafter will start at that moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. What a book we have. Things which were, things which are, and things which shall be hereafter. And it has greater uh, uh, testimony to it than any other writing that has ever existed in this world. It's a road map. If you want to get from point A to point B, from your birth to your death, And then stand before your Savior, confident that you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful service, then you follow this book. You do what it says. You understand the the detail by which it was given and the instruction and that the author of it is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows every twist and turn along the way. Some have made themselves shipwreck, right? 
Some have departed, the Apostle Paul said, and become shipwrecked because uh, as a ship that should have been following its course, it gets off course. I read a, a little a story this week of a guy who was writing about the sinking of the Titanic. On April 14, 1912, that huge ship sailing from England to America with 2,200 people on board, of course, struck an iceberg, as we know, and in a matter of minutes, uh, that great ship went under. 1,500 people out of the 2,200 died. There were 20 lifeboats. And they, lower, they began to lower those lifeboats and people got in them. And the shame was that some of them trying to get away from the ship as quickly as they could left half full and, and, and had m- much more room for other people. And the, the lifeboats were lowered and, of course, the water was beginning to swirl and the pu- ship was pulling things toward it. And so they were rowing as fast as they can to get away from all of that and get out of way. And yet all around them, and, and there was a testimony in this story of a lady who, had, who was still living when, when this story was written. And she described the screams of dying people, drowning people. And in the midst of these screams and in the midst of this tragedy, here are all these boats and they're rowing as fast as they can to get away from it all. But there was one lifeboat. It was lifeboat number 14. And lifeboat number 14 was already pretty full. But they heard the screams and the cries of people drowning. And so lifeboat 14 turned back. And even in the swirling water, as much as they could, tried to reach the screams of people and pull them on board. And as many as they could get on board, they did. Overcrowded and all the rest. And they made it okay. And I thought, folks, our world has lost its way. And the ship is going to sink. And countries come and countries go. Nations come and nations go. People come and people go. Churches come and churches go. But in this sea that we are in, they need a roadmap and people are dying and drowning and you and I have something secure and something to give them. And yeah, we have to go out of our way. Yeah, we have to take a chance with things to reach these people with the gospel. But that is the only way they're going to be saved. You and I that have this roadmap, you and I that have this security, let's do it. And if we are on this, on this road and you know you have taken a detour and you've gone away from what God wants you uh, to be, then in your heart, bow your heart to God and say, oh, Lord, forgive me of these things and restore me. Come and be on your knees here even at this altar and confess that sin to God and say, I need to get back on the right path. I need to be where you want me to be today. Maybe you don't even know Christ as Savior. Maybe you're really one of those sinking in the water and you've been crying out for help. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ is the one to save you. And the scripture tells, shows us plainly how we can receive him as our personal Savior. Maybe you need to do that this morning too. I want you to stand with me if you will. But let's stand with our heads bowed before we open our songbooks. Let's bow our heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask his help and his direction at this time. Now, Father, we are standing here before you and we have read your word and we have tried our best to understand it. Without the Holy Spirit's help, we cannot even know it. But because we know Christ as Savior, we know we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so we know also we can ask you for help and you give us the desires of our heart when these desires match your desire. 
Father, we ask for that conviction of the Spirit. We ask for that direction of the Spirit this morning. We ask, Father, that you would show us in our own lives and our own hearts where we have veered away from your path. Help us to come back to what the chart, what the scripture, what the writing shows us. And then, Father, there may be one here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior. Maybe this is the time when the Spirit has done that work that only he can do in that heart and maybe they would come and receive Christ today. We pray that that would be the case. Now, Father, whatever our need is and whatever we need to do, I pray that you would guide us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Page 338, a song that we sometimes sing. It's a good song for what we know, 338. Let me remind you, even as we do this, that maybe you know that you need to be in a church like this next week five o'clock not tonight but a week from tonight if you are wanting to know how to join this church you need to come to that class next week at five o'clock maybe you'll say today as we sing this song i'm going to go next week and i'm going to take those steps that i need to join this church maybe you'll do that maybe you're waiting baptism and uh, here in July, we will be baptizing again. And maybe you need to start preparing for that. And you want to surrender yourself to that. Or maybe you need to receive Christ as Savior. Meet me here at the front and say, this is what I need. Let someone show you from the word of God how to do that. Let's, let's sing on this song. You do what God wants you to do.